Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you all. Um, I want to begin this morning with a confession. A um, number of years ago, when I was teaching in class, um, I got into my head because only a year or so before my sister's family had moved up to Bakersfield that I did not know that there are lots of churches here, to be honest. It's the ignorance of somebody who lives in San Diego County. And so I be, it became my habit, initially began as a joke, but became a mantra that I repeated over and over again, saying that we can't be just going into big cities like New York or San Francisco or Chicago or elsewhere, but that we need to go into smaller cities and towns like Bakersfield. Uh, that why don't we have church planners in Bakersfield? I kept repeating probably at least once a week uh, for the whole semester. Little did I know that in that class was Adrian Crum, who happens to be Elder Stu's son-in-law of Covenant PCA. Um, I wish he would have talked to me earlier, uh, then I wouldn't have made a fool of myself the whole semester, but he came up toward the end of the semester and he said, um, Prof Kim, I just want you to know that there is a PCA church in Bakersfield and my father happens to be an elder there. Soon after, my sister started attending the church, and so I was duly chastened. And, uh, and now, standing here before you, meeting wonderful Christians and brothers and sisters from various churches, uh, Pastor Chad, Pastor Joshua of Disciples Church, and I'm sure there are many others who are here representing various churches that are here. It's, it's an honor for me to be here again, as I was saying last night. And it's a joy to be spending time with my brothers and sisters here. I will be never saying that again. For the Lord is clearly at work here, and the churches are amazingly vibrant. This morning, we want to turn to Romans chapter 7, um, verses 1 through 25. Let me begin with my second confession and apology, which is the first session is going to go as ordered in your handout. The second session, I decided to change my perspective a little bit and combine the second section with a part of a third. So it's not like there's going to be anything new. It's just that I'm bringing some portions of the third lesson earlier into the second lesson. And then the final session will be the shortest because I'm going to be dividing up the time. And it's going to be shortest because I, I thought about doing this initially, but I chose not to. Now I'm going back to it, which is chapter 8, verses 31 through 39 is actually Paul's preaching. Uh, he's preaching at the end, having talked about these things. And so I decided last night that I want to end with a sermon from 31 through 39. So instead of incorporating that into another longer section in chapter 8, I'm going to do that separately, do the longer second session, and then the first session as normally we would. So hopefully you'll, you'll understand that. I'll, I'll give you pointers as we go. But that's our plan. We'll go for about the first 50 minutes take about a 10-minute break. We'll go for about an hour, take a 10-minute break, and we'll finish in about 30 or 40 minutes with the last session. Hopefully that works for everyone here as well. Chapter 7 is where we're at, uh, verses 1 through 25. We would like to read this this morning as well together. We'll read it responsibly. I'll read the odd verses. You can read the even ones. Hear now again the word of the Lord. Or do you not know, brothers... For I am speaking to, to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. <clears throat> Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from the law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. 
For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandments came, sin came alive and I died. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that I want to do right. Evil lies close at hand. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Thank God, Lord, so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for waking us up this morning with a desire to study your word. This is so countercultural for us to be here that we would spend Saturdays, often times that people use for rest, to find rest in your word. Honor us with your presence this morning, O Lord, that you will teach us directly. We, your sons and daughters, gather in your home to hear your voice, declare the truths of your word. We ask that, O Lord, you would declare it to us illuminate our minds by your spirit help us to understand not only with our minds but with our hearts that these truths may be applied to our lives as well we thank you and pray this in your son's name amen this has been paul's argument thus far friends he told us in chapters 3 4 and 5 that we are justified by faith because we are united to christ jesus our lord And in chapter 6, he reminded us that if we are in Christ, that if we are united to Christ, we die to sin. And we rose again with Christ to the newness of life, living a new creation life in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as chapter 6 proceeds, our mindset should not be, we should sin because our sin increases grace. 
We should also not say we should sin because we live under grace and God forgives us when we sin. For sin represents old life, life apart from Christ and under the dominion of sin. But we are made new in Christ and we have become slaves of righteousness. You might have noticed that in chapter 5, verses 12, through chapter 8, verse 4, sin is exclusively singular. Because what he's dealing with is not about individual sins that you and I deal with on a daily basis. Whether it be telling a lie, dishonoring our parents, perhaps going on in ways that sins seen and unseen plague our lives. Those things are all very important for us to think about and deal with. But Paul's intention is not to provide a solution to those individual sins. Because those individual sins are symptoms. Symptoms of a larger problem. And the larger problem is that we live in the condition of sin, rebelling against God and running away from God. And so what Paul wants us to deal with in these chapters is to be reminded that it's about our relationship with Christ that's primary and foremost. That is to repeat what we said last night. Who we are determines what we do. That we are united to Christ. That we are in Christ Jesus determines our actions for the future. It allows us ways to deal with the symptoms of sin in our lives. But this is where we said last night, we get into the first portion of chapter 7, where he continues this misunderstanding of righteous life in light of the life that we have in Christ Jesus our Lord. We begin in chapter 7 where the question is, what if, what if we focus on the law and recommit ourselves to keeping it? Wouldn't that work for us in terms of becoming more holy and righteous before God? Wouldn't that sanctify us as we pray and desirefully seek to become more like Christ? More law would allow us to be more holy. Isn't that the case? That's the question being asked here at the beginning of chapter 7. That as Christians saved by grace now must turn to the law and say, more law is better for us. Now, part of the reason why we focus on the law is not only because he says so on the first verse, because remember the diatribe? He begins with a question that we spoke of yesterday when he says, or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, is the question he begins with. All of chapter 7 is about the law. And we can't forget that as the controlling issue. What I mean by the controlling issue is that when Paul answers a question, there is an answer he wants to give to a specific question. There may be things he says that are tangentially related to what he's saying. And that may be important to us, but you and I as readers of Paul must get to the central thesis that he's asking first. And we understand that in chapter 7, what he wants us to focus on is the law. Just listen here just for a sec, just to hear the force of how often this is discussed. In verse 1, I am speaking to those who know the law. Verse 4, you have also died to the law. Verse 6, we are released from the law. Verse 6, the old way of the written code. Verse 12, the law is holy. Verse 14, the law is spiritual. 
Verse 16, the law is good. Verse 22, I delight in the law of God. Verse 25, the law of God. What do you think is the theme of this particular chapter here? Hopefully I made my case that the chapter 7 itself is primarily about the law. It will will come back to let us know why that's important to us, especially as we deal with some of the complicated issues with verse 14 and on that Pastor Randy alluded to. Because one of the first things he wants to point out is that all of us have freedom from the law, according to verses 1 through 6. What he wants to say is that there was a time when we were ruled by the law. The verb that is translated here, interestingly, where it's binding on a person, it says, here the verb is actually kurio, or kurieo is what it says in Greek. The reason I say that in Greek is to point out, when we say somebody is Lord, we use the word kurios. So here the word is the Lord. It's about rule and reign. And it's translated this way where we are understanding that there was a time when the law ruled and reigned over us. This is another way of saying that we stood once before in the law's condemnation and judgment. One thing that we need to note here as we move on further is that Paul is speaking directly to the Jews. In fact, he says that, for I am speaking to those who know the law. That's euphemism to say, you Jews who who are here, who've received the law, it's to you I'm speaking at this stage. He said, one time in your life, by the law, commandment, or the letter, Paul refers to the old covenant the era of the law, when perfect obedience to the law was required for right standing with God. So to those who know the law, you know what he means, what I mean, Paul says, there was a time where the law was the governing issue. Therefore, the law ruled over you because your standing before God was determined by righteous actions according to the law. This is why later on, oftentimes when we read the book of Romans, chapters 9, 10, and 11 stand out almost as if a separate thing. But as I was indicating last night, chapters 10, 11, and, 9, 11, and 10, and 11 are all continuations uh, uh, that object to the gospel message of uh, Jesus Christ. And here in chapter 10, Paul divides the way people understand salvation or the way of salvation. He says this in chapter 10, verse 5. For Moses writes, the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who, uh, person, the commandment shall live by them, but the righteousness based on faith. He makes a contrast between two kinds of righteousnesses, right? One righteousness is based on the law. The other righteousness is based on faith. He makes this dichotomy again in places like Philippians 3.9, where he had this, do you remember a mock boast that he made? You think you have followed the law? Well, let me tell you how good I am. If you want to depend on earthly things to determine whether you have right standing before God. In explaining his credentials, where he talks about the fact that he's a Hebrew of Hebrews, as for the law of Pharisee, a revered class of people among the Jews in the first century, he says there are two kinds of righteousnesses. Not having the righteousness of my own that comes from the law. 
So righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Notice the distinction again. In Romans 10, he made the distinction between righteousness that comes by the law, righteousness that comes by faith. Philippians, he says, righteousness of my own that is dependent on the law, righteousness of God that is by faith. These are the two ways of righteousness. righteousnesses. And he's simply pointing out the days and age when you try and desire to obtain righteousness by the law is over in Christ Jesus our Lord. This period has come to an end, superseded by Christ's justifying work in us, applied by the Holy Spirit. God now relates to us in Christ, by grace and through faith. The righteousness that he speaks speaks of and the gospel of grace that he's been mentioning is not by works of the law or the law itself, but received by faith, only through faith, because it comes as a gracious gift of God. Therefore, he says, we have died to the law through the body of Christ, having been released from the law, verse 6 says. In order to illustrate to his Jewish brothers that the law is not the way to become right before God, he illustrates it with an illustration of marriage, something that many people understood really well. It was a ready-made illustration, something that is legal and relational, something that is permanent, that he sees that can be a best illustration for this issue, where he says, in a marriage, the legal and relational obligations are valid only when the spouse is living. For a married man is bound by law to her husband while he lives, according to chapter 7, verse 2. But when he dies, the law that bound her is no longer in force. He says, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. What is Paul's point here? Our death in Christ has not only broken the dominating power of sin, but it has also dissolved our marriage and dependence upon the law. And so for those who pride themselves in possessing the law, the law does not save you, Paul says. What saves is the gracious gift of the Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, received passively through faith alone, is the way we stand right before God. Friends, as we were mentioning last night, the church in the first century was a very diverse group. Men and women, slave and free, and often Jews and Gentiles. Paul speaks to this diverse group and is mindful of their different mindsets. He, as their pastor and their apostle, want to make sure two things for them. That is, first of all, to those Jews in the church, the time when they related to God through the law is over in Christ, he wants to say. You cannot return to the law. Here, this is why when he talks about the Judaizers, these are the individuals who are trying to drag Christians back to the old practices of the law, that you must be circumcised, 
You must follow the dietary laws. That you must go through all the holidays of the church, as various writings of Paul indicates. It cannot be, because those things do not save. Those two things do not make us right with God. Those days are over, he says. The righteousness based on the law was proven impossible because they could not fulfill the law and God had another solution for them. This is why he says in chapter 10, he is so remorseful and sad that his fellow countrymen, the Jews, are not coming to recognize Jesus Christ. And this is how he explains why they are acting this way. Brothers, My heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. This would have been incredibly offensive because they have the law that the Gentiles didn't. But he said, I have no doubts that you have zeal for God, but this is zeal without proper knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness from God and seeing to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believe he declares. This is the problem, he says. You cannot depend on the law for your salvation. It's proven to be ineffective and that age has come to an end. But as he says this to the Jews, he says, the question is, does this mean that the Gentiles have nothing to gain from this? If he's addressing this to those who know the law, telling them the age of the law is over, does that mean you and I, maybe some of you are Jewish in your ethnic background, but to us who are Gentiles, does it speak nothing to us? Here, Absolutely not. Paul emphatically wants everyone to understand that any dependence on the law for righteousness is misguided and impossible. We cannot grow in our standing before God by somehow gaining in our righteous living according to the law. That somehow, if we conjure up more rules for us to live it, this was exactly the problem of the Pharisees, wasn't it? They added 600 plus laws to already the given laws in order that they can be even more righteous than others, more pure than others. But the reminder is, whether Jew or not, any dependence on your own works for righteousness is impossible. Having died to the law, we now belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, verse 4 says. Dependence on Christ through faith is the only way we now bear fruit for God, according to verse 4. The old ways are over. As Paul says, we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. And the days in which the performance before God made our standing before God rise, is over. God cannot love you more than He already does in Christ Jesus. God cannot love you less than He already does for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. We are performance-driven people. It's about accomplishments. Just do it, the commercial says. You can do it. We can help, Home Depot declares. Here, it's all about us and our ability to do things. And here, Paul says, "Uh uh-uh. For the Jews, 
days of thinking that you could live up to the law is over. It's Christ Jesus you lean upon. For those of us, the days where you think that your successes mean your own standing before God rises and your failure means that God turned his back upon you is to misunderstand what Jesus has done for you once and for all. Because Christ made it possible for us to depend on him by grace alone, through faith alone, and there's nothing else that opens our door to God to whom we have access because of Jesus Christ our Lord. This is where the, the pivot turns. This is the point that he wants us to make. We seek righteousness, but that's not a righteousness of our own. It's alien righteousness, and we live that way. Does this mean, Does this mean that the law that's there and given to us is bad? Do you remember the diatribe again? Here, as he talks about the fact that the law is not effective in saving us, the law is not what we depend upon to bring joy and glory to God, here the question that people might have in their own minds is, that means the law is bad, isn't it? Law must be done away with. We must ignore the law. Here, in driving home the point that the law cannot save, he makes a shocking statement in verse 5. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Shocking. Here he uses the word flesh. It's worth noting here that the word flesh is not a simple reference to our physical bodies but to our sinful, fallen nature. This is why the NIV, as we, uh, as we talked about it briefly last night, translates it as the sinful nature, not the flesh. In this nature, the relationship between the law and sin is pretty complicated. The law, instead of providing correction, arouses the sinful passions. That's the intriguing part. Since Adam and Eve, we have been infatuated with the forbidden fruit. When we're told, do not eat of this fruit. And we know that from the beginning, this sin issue is not about how much we know or do not know. Unfortunately, how what we know does not often translate into what we do. So the existence of the law does not deal with the sin problem because the relationship is complicated. Let me give you one example of this. My daughter Anna, again, probably the best-looking, smartest kid that is out there, (laughs) bar none. Um, When she was about a year and a half, we knew pretty quickly that original sin was real in seeing the children because... We had what we called a VCR. For those of you who are younger, you may not know what that is. There was a development over time. There was this thing called tapes. And they made tapes for videos. And the VCR is a tape for videos. And it's this big opening up at the front. And I I know most of you are laughing, but I bet you there are some people who have never used it. My kids do not know what a corded phone is because they've never used it before. One, one of these days, I'm going to bring a dial phone and see what they do with it. There is absolutely no way they can figure out what that might have been like. When Anna was young, we used to have VCR primarily, 
And then she was always infatuated with the opening, which means that she loved the idea of sticking things in there. For some reason, there's an opening, you stick it in, is the idea they seem to have. After a while, we've said enough no's to let her know that that's not a good thing to do. Yet you can remember how kids were, or perhaps are, as she is crawling toward the VCR with something in her hand, wanting to stick it in. And as we're sitting behind her, even before we say no, she turns her head around and sees us. She knows it's a no. Whether we say it or not, she knows it's a no. But she looks at us, grabs her thing, and sticks it in. It's amazing how kids test your boundaries and your envelope. That's how we are. We know, yet we do. It's often not an intellectual problem. How often are we enticed by the sign that says, private, do not enter. And yet our desire is to just invade that space as much as possible. One fun example of this is St. Augustine in his Confessions. When he was a teenager, he hung out with a company of brothers that he called naughty adolescents who one night decided that they're going to go to their neighbor's home and shake the pear tree that's there. And then one night as they did so, they stole the pear tree, I mean the fruit. As he confesses in his book, his motive was not that he was hungry since they threw the fruit to the pigs. But he then explains his mindset when he said, I stole something which I had in plenty and of much better quality. My desire was to enjoy not what I sought by stealing, but merely the excitement of thieving and the doing of what was wrong. And then he goes up to follow and asks, was it possible to take pleasure in what was illicit for no other reason than it was allowed? This is the human condition is the point. It's not how much law we know or not, or how well we know the law or not. We know, yet we do. It's never the knowledge problem. So is the problem the law? Paul says no. The law is holy. It's a reflection of God's character. It's spiritual and good. He repeats that for us. In fact, the law has wonderful uses. The law teaches us sin according to verse 7. Only God who is righteous can define what is good and evil, right and wrong. Without the law of God, we would not know sin. He further points out that the law exposes our sinfulness. He says in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Paul says, believing that he thought he was alive before fully understanding the law's true meaning and requirement. But when he realized the requirement and the demands of the law, he recognized the depths of his sin. So one purpose of the law is to expose how deep our sins are, which, by the way, friends, are often more deep than you and I give credit for, so that we will not trust in ourselves, but trust in God. It exposes our need for Christ, and it drives us to Christ. But it does not save. And the reason for that is the problem is not us. I'm sorry, the problem is not the law, which is good and spiritual and from God and holy. The problem is you and I and the sin within. 
It's your fault. It's your fault. It's your fault. Forgive me for pointing. It's my fault as well. It's not the law that's the problem, he says. It's the sin residing in us. The real problem is not the law or the lack of knowledge of the law, but the sin remaining in us. It takes what is holy, spiritual, and good and makes it an instrument for destruction. The law, therefore, is good. But Paul wants to say it's impotent. It's impotent to save. It's impotent to sanctify. The law is good. It cannot save us. It cannot make us holy. Sin is that powerful. Sometimes I don't think we recognize how powerful sin is in our lives. Maybe some of us do. But the problem is, it's even worse than you think is the problem. It nags at us. It continues to bother us. It grabs at our Achilles heel. It continues to come back over and over and over again. As we are told in the Old Testament, the sin crouches at your door, waiting to pounce at moments of weakness in your life. He says... The law does not save. The law does not sanctify. But the problem is not the law, but it's sin living in us. It's this context that sets up verses 13 through 25. What is chapter 7 about? The law. That the law is good. Paul wants to defend that truth. The law is good and holy and spiritual. Spiritual. At the same time, the law cannot save. The law cannot sanctify. This stems from the misunderstanding that we see in chapter 7, verses 10 through 11. He says, The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Friends, Paul is saying the law is good, but we are sinful. Several points he said that in chapter 3, verse 20, 415, 526, 14, that God made the law to be good, but it cannot solve my problem and your problem of sin. Thus, we cannot help but to say that not only is justification by grace, sanctification is also by grace. There's no other way. To illustrate how powerful sin is in overcoming the right intentions of the law, he gives us an illustration. There's a lot of debate over where preachers should use personal examples as illustrations. I understand that debate often as well. I guess I'm not a preaching professor, so I take license with it. But the second part also is I like illustrations that I understand. Um, And oftentimes, my own life lived gives better illustration than trying to find an illustration that fits elsewhere or perhaps even scripture at times. This is, I think, Paul's intention. Paul rarely talks about himself. You know, uh, you might have been enjoying Calvin at different stages. A fun story about Calvin is that Calvin never intended to be a reformer, you might recall that he rarely talks about himself. There are a couple times when he does, he talks something very revealing about himself. That is, in his introduction to his Psalms commentary, he talks about how he ended up staying in Geneva. 
He was fleeing from the authorities uh, from France, where he's from, where he has published already the first version of the Institutes of Christian Religion. And he was becoming well-known among many of the reformers. And he decided to stay over one night in Geneva in order to get to Strasbourg, where his friend Bootser was, so that he may have a quiet life of scholarship that night. Somehow, it was found out that he was there, that a reformer from the church there, in this case, William Farrell, approached him that night. And he said, Calvin, you must stay. You must stay and reform the city with us. And he said, no, I want to live a quiet life of scholarship in Strasbourg with my friend Martin Bootser. And then all of a sudden, Pharrell went Nathan on him. He basically pointed his finger at him. May the Lord curse your peace if you do not obey his command to stay and reform the church. And he says, not out of conviction, but out of sense of fear he stayed, is how he describes it. So whenever these people who don't talk much about who they are share something about themselves, it's very significant later on when he was commenting on the book of Titus. He actually has a dedication to William Farrell. He said, no jealousy, no competition, a brother like yours, no one else can pray for. And he says, the reason I dedicate this book to you is because the relationship between Paul and Titus is like the relationship between you and and I, is what Calvin said. It's the band of brothers moment. Incredible friendship surrounding people. But to illustrate that point, when people illustrate with themselves, it's a very critical point that they want to make. Now, as I say that, you recognize I made a commitment in terms of how you view verses 14 through 25. This is a controversial passage that keeps New Testament students having jobs in seminaries because there are plenty of things to write about forever and evermore. I gave you three major popular positions now. There's actually many more variations, perhaps even a fourth one that's alive and well in some quarters. Let me explain it to you this way. Many people deal with the problem of who this I is in verses 14 and on. He says, I do not understand. I want to do good, but I don't do it. I, I don't want to do bad, but I keep on doing it. This I, the problem of the I. For a long period of time, and we have fairly good pedigree even to this modern day and age, here it was believed to be autobiographical, which means that the I is Paul. And secondarily, not only is it about Paul, it's Paul as a regenerate person, a believer, a Christian. Over time, there's also a belief, in fact, held by one of his closest friends, Martin Bootser, that yes, regenerate, but weak in faith before receiving some power from the Spirit. You know that there was a lordship salvation controversy during the 80s, which is, I think, mostly died out, comes from this, this line of thinking that 714 through 25 relates to those who have not had the blessing of Christ in some way. But I think it's a very, very, very minor position now in the minds of many. The second more prominent position, and perhaps the dominant position now, is to say that the I is hypothetical. That is, it's not about Paul, but that he's using himself as an example that is indicating something bigger. It's not about him. And then, not only that, it's before he became regenerate. That it's pre-Christian Paul. That also has 
fairly heavy historic pedigree as well. The third position, which is becoming fairly popular in places like Doug Moo's commentary, and I've given you a footnote to one of my colleagues, Dennis Johnson, uh, a fairly uh, wonderful teacher and an exegete in the PCA. He argues in the article that I put there in a very, very articulate way, the third position, which is a subcategory of the non-autobiographical position that argues that it's not about Paul. Nor is it about a person, but it's about Israel. It's Israel before they receive the law and after they receive the law, but rejecting Christ. It's about the whole nation of. I think all those positions are interesting. And here, we can get incredibly bogged down talking about those various positions and articulating it. But I want to pause and simply point out this. What did I say is the main theme of chapter 7? The law. It's not about uh, the, 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 some kind of anthropology. It's not about a doctrine of man or women or human beings or the condition of human beings or before or after Christ necessarily. That is to say, the main purpose and controlling issue for Paul in Romans chapter 7 is the law and our relationship to the law, and the law's impossibility or impotence when it comes to sin. That can be illustrated whether you deal with the autobiographical, regenerate Paul, or you're dealing with non-autobiographical, pre-regenerate Paul, or for that matter, even the redemptive historical position. I think you see what I mean by that. It really does not matter ultimately which position you take to make the point that Paul is making. That is, the law cannot save, the law cannot sanctify. Why? Because of sin. Sin overcomes and overwhelms the law. But since I'm here, I should probably take a position. Here... I don't think I can have a better friend and ally than this, than John Calvin, who, by the way, was not always perfect. Uh, if that sounds blasphemous, I, I, I apologize, but he was a human being after all. Here he says, a regenerate man, therefore, affords the most suitable example to acquaint us with the extent of the disagreement between our nature and the righteousness which comes from the law. Do you see what he's saying? The illustration of the possibility that seems most likely infeasible to illustrate what point that our sinful nature overcomes the holy and good spiritual law can best be illustrated in the regenerate life of Paul. And I agree with that statement. That for many of us, there is a war within Paul acknowledges that he is divided according to chapter 7, verse 18. For he corrects himself when he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then he actually makes a qualifier. That is, in my flesh. Such a division is possible, we believe, because of the person's regenerate state. He acknowledges that sin remains in him when he says, I am of the flesh. Paul is not denying the new power of the Spirit 
with him, but admitting that there is still a strong remnant of sin that he is fighting against. This is why he describes in verse 19, for I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing, he says. Paul knows and genuinely desires to do what is right, but also acknowledges that this has not always been easy for him. I wonder if this is true of you. I know it's certainly true of me. His desire to please God is always there. He agrees that the law is good, verse 16. He desires to do what is right, verse 18. He delights in the law of God, in his innermost being, 722. He has a new heart that knows and delights and desires to be more like Christ. But yet, there is a war taking place, for sin is there. Sin takes what is good, the law. And overcomes it. The good that I want to do, I don't do. The bad that I don't want to do, I keep on doing. This is not to excuse who we are. This is not to point out that this is an acceptable norm. It's to simply point out that this is something that all of us experience with the same cry that comes out at the end, Oh, what a wretched man I am. For you see, friends, this is the condition of you and I as believers before heaven comes. It's what we call the overlapping of ages. Theologians use cumbersome terms like already and the not yet. Semi-eschatological, inaugurated eschatology. All that means is simply this. When Jesus came, the consummating end times began. But it hasn't consummated. There is a day when Jesus who came will come again. It's bookends of the same event. And this period until Jesus returns, his power and his recreative presence is already known and experienced, but not fully consummated. As Oscar Kuhlmann, one of the older generations, liberal theologian, uh, uh, talked about it as, it's it's like D-Day. When in 1941, D-Day occurred, in hindsight in history, everyone knew that the end was coming. But at that time, it hasn't come yet. But D-Day secured that the end will come. This is the argument of 1 Corinthians 15. When Jesus resurrected from the body, that guarantees the future bodily resurrection of his believers. That his resurrection is one and the same with ours. There is an organic union that can't be separated. What began will come to an end, as Paul says. In these in-between times, we call the overlap of the ages. Where we have one foot in heaven, one foot on earth. We are a citizen of heaven, yet we live here. We are pilgrims and aliens. Do you know the Greek word for alien? It's paroikos. You might hear a word there you might recognize. Because even if you don't know Greek, everyone knows this word. Two words, koinonia, and the second one is oikos, which means family. Paroikos means outside of the family. That means we are a people going home. 
We're pilgrims here. This is not our home. Not of this world is not just merely a name of a company. It's actually what scripture teaches. We do not belong here. And because we are where Christ is, here we reflect that heavenly image. At the same time, because we reside on earth where sin reigns, this is why Paul says, who will deliver me from this body of wrath? We live in between the ages. And this is our human condition. Friends, that we struggle with our sin is not a bad sign, but often a good one. It means that the Spirit is at work within us. It is an even bigger problem if there is no struggle with sin. Either because your conscience is broken or you've given up. And what it forces us to do is to do what he cries out at the end when he says, Who will deliver me from this body of death? It forces us to say, I cannot do it. I don't have the willpower, nor can I depend upon the law to save me. Who will save me? And his answer is what? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's not about tactics. It's not about a self-improvement problem. It's not about 12 steps to solving our problems. It's about our reliance and utter dependence on Jesus Christ our Lord. Because we cannot save. The law cannot save. We cannot sanctify. The law cannot sanctify. Only Christ can. We are justified by grace and we are sanctified by grace. Let's take a 10-minute break here and then we'll come back and pick up with the uh, second of the three sessions today.